Please stand as we hear the word of the Lord that comes from Mark chapter 4. Mark chapter 4, verse 35 through 41. It says, On that day, when evening had come, he, Jesus, said to the disciples, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, Do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. And he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, that it is alive, that it is active, that it is shaping and changing and molding us into your people. Help us, Lord, to be built up by this word. Help it, Lord, to to build us up so that we may serve you and love you and praise you and worship you and honor you and glorify you. Shape us in the way that you want us to be shaped. We pray all this in your name. Amen. You may be seated. So this passage is a passage that has always astonished me, truly, for a a number of reasons. And I I think about it often, and it's just fascinating. And one of the reasons that it's so astonishing to me is the way that it's written. Uh, This story has lots of details, and Mark has lots of details for that matter. Uh, Details that describe scenes and describe situations, but they don't necessarily add to the story. In our passage, it says that they took Jesus on a boat just as he was. It says that he was asleep on a cushion. It says that there were other boats with them, but none of these things really ever come back into play into the story. And now we today are, we're used to authors and people writing and telling stories like this. Authors that describe scenes and details and smells and tastes, right? And what they're doing is they're trying to bring the story to life, to make it so that as if you're actually there. But people didn't really start writing this way until about 150 years ago, especially in the times of the scriptures and especially in the times of the Bible when it was written, paper was so rare and so expensive that people wrote only what was necessary for the story. Even in Greek and Hebrew, if we find those, you know, really old documents, there's like no spaces between any of the letters because you had to be, you had to get as much on a piece of paper as you could right? And so details that don't necessarily matter uh, were never put into stories. And a man named C.S. Lewis noticed this. And he is an expert on ancient ancient literature, not just writing children's novels. He was uh, an expert in ancient writings. And he said that the details in the Gospels are fascinating. And he said that Nothing like the Gospels would be written for another 1,600 years. And he said the reason that these details are added It's because they're eyewitness accounts. That these are eyewitness stories in the scriptures. Where the author is is describing what he saw. And he says Jesus is asleep on the, you know, he's asleep on a cushion. Because Jesus really was asleep on a cushion. And Mark, or Peter, who's most likely telling Mark what to write, is remembering the story. And Mark's just writing it down. And so the only reason the details are added is because that is what actually happened. 
And there are plenty of details in the Gospels that you wouldn't ever start if you were trying to invent a religion. You wouldn't, for instance, put that the first people to see the risen Jesus are women. You would never put that if you're trying to start a a new religion because to the Hebrews and to the Greeks and to the Romans, women's testimony was less credible than even a dog. You wouldn't put uh, that the heroes, the people who are trying to start this religion as the disciples, the founders, as the ones who constantly fail, the ones who constantly don't get it. That's how you de-invent or deconstruct religion, not how you start one. So why is it then that these details are put into the Gospels? It's because that's what actually happened. And in real life, in the real history, this is what actually happened. And I share you this story because we're about to talk, the fact that, talk about the fact that Jesus just spoke to a storm and it obeyed. It seems unbelievable. But Jesus really did speak to a storm and it really did obey. It isn't a fairy tale or a movie with CGI. This story that we're studying today is a historical event. It's something that really happened. And it's just as unbelievable to the disciples as it is to us. But they write it, and they write the details in this story because it actually happened. And today, from the story, we're going to look at three things. Number one, we're going to talk about the fact that this story shows that Jesus is God. Secondly, we're going to talk about the disciples' question that they ask Jesus And third, Jesus' response. So we're starting with the fact that Jesus is God. We're moving to the fact that the disciples ask Jesus a question, and then we're going to look at Jesus' response. If you study ancient cultures, it's unanimous that only the gods could control the sea. Only the gods could control the sea. It was untamable. It was powerful, dangerous, and full of huge creatures that are super scary, and I'm still afraid of them, Uh, and only the most powerful gods could control the sea. And in order to have any control over the sea, when you made a voyage, you needed to make sacrifices to that god. You needed to pay homage to that god. Otherwise, the sea would swallow you up and spit you out. It was untamable and scary. And this was true also of the weather. I mean, think of Poseidon and Zeus, the greatest gods of the Romans and the Greeks. Only they could control the things as powerful as nature uh, and storms and the ocean because the forces behind them were so great. But then out steps our story, right? Jesus. Jesus is on a boat, and he's in the Sea of Galilee. And his disciples, who are fishermen, some of them are fishermen, which means that they know how to sail. They're good sailors. This is their trade. This is what they do. And they're gliding across the waters. And Jesus is asleep on a cushion because he's been preaching and teaching all day. And suddenly a great storm comes. And great winds come. And the boat begins to fill up. And the disciples are thinking, you know, this is really bad. Like, this is really bad. Look at the waters out there. You know, if we go in there, we're going to die. And they know this is their job. And yet Jesus is somehow still asleep. He's sleeping through the storm. Their leader is fast asleep. And finally, one of his disciples goes to Jesus and he wakes him up because they need his help. Pull some ropes. Help us. Do something. How is it that you're still sleeping? And they ask him a question and, and Jesus wakes up and he speaks to the waves and he tells the winds, be still, be at peace stop. And it does. It obeys him. And it says that there's a great calm. 
a great calm. And I'm sure this is a spectacular sight to behold. The great calm after a great storm, and it stopped when Jesus said, stop. Now what is this telling us? What is this, this summary, what is this story telling us? Well, as I said earlier, only, only the strongest, only God can control the sea and the winds and the storms. Only God can control these forces. And this story is teaching us that he's been sleeping at the front of a boat on a cushion. Only God can control the storms, and yet there's Jesus who's just done this, who's been sleeping in the front of the boat. He has just told the sea and the winds and the waves to stop and be quiet, and it listened. And if, you, you know, if you're having a hard time believing this, so do the disciples, right? Like it says that they were afraid. They're afraid of the storm. They're afraid of going under. And then suddenly, they're more afraid. They're even more afraid. They're even more terrified because a man just stood up and told this, the winds and the waves to obey, and it listened. And they're like, who is this? <laughs> Who's been sleeping in a boat? Who have we been living with the last few weeks? He just spoke to nature, and it obeyed. Something far more terrifying and powerful is with them than the winds and the waves. There's more to this Jesus than meets the eye. Now, as I thought about this passage, I was stunned of what it might, what it might be like to see Jesus stand up and command the winds and the waves and just the sheer shock that we might feel as if we saw this happen today. And for some reason, I kept thinking of the Lord of the Rings. Uh, when, when Frodo is stabbed by a cave troll in the Fellowship of the Ring, and, and, and Aragorn says, you know, that, that spear thrust was so powerful it could have skewed a wild boar. Uh, and only for Frodo, who's a little hobbit, to roll over just a few seconds later, and he's still alive. He's, un, he's unharmed. He's not bleeding. He should have surely been dead. But underneath his shirt, unbeknownst to everybody else, Frodo's been wearing a crazy strong metal vest called Mithril, and it saved his life. And Gimli is shocked, and everybody is shocked as they're looking at Frodo still alive, says, you know, there's more to this hobbit than meets the eye. And that's what Jesus has been doing since he showed up in Mark. He's a man, but he's been doing God-type things. He's been doing Yahweh-type things, things that only God of the Old Testament could ever do, right? There's more to Jesus than meets the eye. Jesus has taught as if he has authority, as if he is Yahweh himself. He has healed people as if he is God himself. He has commanded the spirits and bound up Satan, which is a thing only God can do. And here he commands creation and calms a storm like only God can do. And the disciples in the boat are terrified because Jesus has just been breaking down all their categories. Who is this that even the winds and the waves obey? It's God. God is in the boat. God has been walking with them. God has been living amongst them. Their God and their King, who was there at creation and who spoke the universe into existence, still rules over it with the same voice, with the same words. And He's been living amongst them. And we as the church, you know, what's the point of the story? We as the church must have, with the highest certainty, with the highest uh, degree of of clinging on to knowing the fact that Jesus is God. There's a lot of counterfeit Jesuses out there. 
There's a lot of, of things that people say who Jesus is, and a lot of them say he's not God. He's a good teacher. He's a good example. He's a good, he's a good person, and we should learn some things. No, he is God, and you have to hold on to that. You have to know this. If Jesus isn't God, he's not worthy of our worship. If Jesus, if Jesus isn't God, he's not worthy of being followed. But if he is, he is worthy of both our worship, but also following him with every single part of our lives. This Jesus is all-powerful. He is worthy of all of our trust. He is Lord of all, and anything less than this would make him unworthy of our following and our devotion. But if this is who he is, if he really is the Son of God, if he really is God himself, then every part of us, every single part of, of everything that we are must lie down at his feet and give him honor and glory and praise. It's the only thing that makes sense if he really is God. This Jesus is Yahweh come down, living with us. And the disciples weren't wrong to fear him with a great fear. Who is this? He's the Lord of the storm, the Lord of the cosmos, the Lord of creation. And the winds and the sea and the storm obeys him. So does everything in nature. So does every disease. So does everything. It all obeys him because he's God. He's Lord of the universe. He is God himself. So we see here first that Jesus is God. He's the Lord of creation. He commands and it obeys. But the second thing we see here is the questions that the disciples ask. Um, So look with me secondly at verses 37 and 38. It says, A great windstorm arose, and the waves began breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. But Jesus was in the stern asleep on a cushion, and they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? So, it, you know, in response to, to the winds and the waves rushing over the boat and making the boat go under and causing it to begin to sink, they, they come over to Jesus and they ask a question, and their question is, do you care that we're perishing? Do you care that we're about to die? Do you care that the boat is going under? Don't you care about this current situation, our suffering? Don't you care about what's going on? Now, I think this is actually a a pretty reasonable question. Many people have asked this. In fact, if you're a Christian, at some point in your life, you will wonder this question. God, do you care? Do you care that, that we're suffering? Do you care that we're about to go under? When life doesn't go well, when we suffer, when we're near death, when someone we love gets hurt, or when you hear the good news of the gospel and you're like, all right, I'm going to start following God and, and everything is going to get better and it just doesn't. Things still go horribly. Life is still hard. It's very easy to look up to God and say, don't you care about what's going on right now? I mean, how many people have become Christians, honestly, because they want a better life here and now? Isn't that the, the heart of the prosperity gospel, right? If you come to Jesus and you, you pray to him and you start following him, then God will give you blessings in every single area of life. Now you don't have to wait for heaven. You can have it now, right? How many thousands of people, especially in Texas, fill churches, mega churches, 30,000, 40,000 people hoping to have a better life now? <laughs> give me wealth, give me comfort, give me ease, but then things don't change. The emotions fade away. The magic disappears. Hard things still happen. Money's still hard. And we say, God, where are you? Where are you? Don't you care that we are dying? Don't you care about my suffering? You see, in this story, Jesus isn't fitting the expectations of the disciples. 
And because they have this, because they have this hard situation, the storm comes about, they doubt his love, they doubt his care, they doubt his trust. They ask, why? Why is this happening? That's why they're asking the question. Now, if you do ministry long enough, you see a lot of people who come into doubt. I have seen a lot of people in doubt over the last years of ministry who have doubt for a lot of reasons. And, you know, the stereotype is, you know, suffering, death, divorce, disease. These are the things that, that you know, these horrible situations that cause us to doubt. And you know what? That happens a lot. Many people have walked away or doubted their faith because these horrible things have happened, and, and I get it. But there's also a less devastating but slower form of doubt that happens over a long period of time that is equally and maybe even more dangerous to a lot of us. See, I had a friend who was one of my, you know, he was one of my best friends at one time for a few years. He was the first person that ever actually asked me to do ministry. Um, And one day as I was gearing up to go to China, he came to me and just said, do you think God's good? And I said, yeah, obviously he's good. But what I didn't realize at the moment was that he was doubting. He had been in love with this girl for years who never loved him. And she was kind of a, she, she, I mean, he was a great guy, but she just was afraid to commit because she was young. And she just thought, I'm not, I'm not old enough to be dating somebody as seriously as this. And that really caused him to doubt. And just one day, he just began to tell me, you know, like, I, I often wonder if, if God is good. Uh, why is it that he wouldn't let me be happy? Why isn't it that he wouldn't let me have this girlfriend? And then he began to wonder, what else am I missing on by following God? And he began to look at his friends he went to school with. He's like, man, they have money. And they have things that I've always wanted. They're doing things that I've always wanted. And he said, it must be really nice to never think about right and wrong because that the way they live is, you know, if they want it, it's obviously right. It's obviously good. Why would, why, you know, why, is, why would we say that, you know, doing this or that isn't wrong? And he said, man, that sounds refreshing. I can just do whatever I want. And his conclusion then became, there can't be a God. Because if he was good, he would obviously have given me these things. But because I have, you know, there's things that I want and I just can't have, God must not be there. He must not be good. Because why doesn't he care? His question is the same. God, do you care? And his conclusion was no. Because of suffering, because of hardship. Not just huge traumatic suffering, but slow, monotonous, day by day, comparing himself to all these other people, he began to resent the Lord to the point where he said he cannot exist. It's not just suffering or huge loss that makes us ask the same questions as the disciples, but also just the, the desire of things we don't get, the unanswered prayers. Our sufferings so often, whether they are big or small, lead us to ask the same questions. God, do you care? God, are you there? Do you care that we are perishing? Do you care about the hardships? Do you care about the things that are going on in our lives? And my question is, do you see this dynamic? Do you see the pattern? Are you aware of the fact that, that it is so easy when, when things don't go right, when church doesn't turn out the way we hoped, when, when people sin against us, when death and sadness and sickness and strage- tragedy strikes our lives, it's so easy to assume God isn't there and he doesn't care. Are you aware of this? Do you see this dynamic in the story? It's easy right now to assume this, isn't it? With the pandemic, with so much loss, with so much sickness, it's so easy to to ask God, do you care? 
as children have died, as businesses have fallen apart, and people's entire livelihoods have ended, it's easy to ask, God, don't you care? Or maybe if it's not even pandemic-related. I mean, marriages have been falling apart for years, and you know, parents and kids are locked into to daily battles. Why won't you sleep? Why won't you eat? And then for so many, their kids grow up and say, I don't believe in the Lord. And we wonder, God, don't you care? I thought you've made covenant promises. For some of us, we just can't seem to, to get a break. Our calendars, no matter how hard we try, never seem to get any less empty and we're tired and we fail at things and we don't get jobs and we don't get raises and we get fired and our parents won't let us be adults and we as children won't grow up and we are always wondering, God, don't you care? Where are you? And we wonder, where are you? Do you see the question here? Do you see the pattern? Do you see the dynamic? Do you see that we are just the same as the disciples? Maybe not exactly alike, but we have the same propensity to doubt God by what goes on in our lives. The question that the disciples ask is one that we think we ask. So we see first that Jesus is God, but secondly, we see this pattern, this dynamic of our ability to doubt to lose faith in God when suffering and hard things come in our life, when the storm comes in. But the third thing we see here is how Jesus responds. Read with me again verses 39 and 40. It says, Jesus, he awoke and he rebuked the wind and he said to the sea, peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. And he said to them, why are you still afraid? Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? So the disciples are like, Hey, Jesus, we've put our faith in you. We're following you. We're trusting in you. We've literally just said, like, we've quit everything we've done in our whole lives, and we've quit all of that, and we're following you. And all of a sudden, we get in this boat with you, and the storm is overtaking us, and we're about to die in this boat. And we've given everything up given up everything to follow you and do you even care what how is this a part of your plan and jesus wakes up and the first thing he does is he calms the winds and he calms the waves he saves their lives and he does so in a way that only god can do it but then he asks them a question in response and his question is this he says why are you so afraid why are you so afraid do you still have no faith Put another way, the question is what Jesus is asking. He says, why, why when the storm comes, do you assume that I don't care? Why when the storm comes, do you assume that I don't care? Why when the the storm comes, do you assume? Why when the storm comes, do you lose your faith? Why when the storm comes, do do you think following me that there wouldn't be any more storms? Why has this storm, this hardship, taken away your faith? You see, Jesus sees here what's really going on in the hearts of the disciples. He sees their assumptions that they have for him and how they're to lead them. And the storm doesn't fit their plan. The storm does not fit the disciples' plans. The the possibility of their deaths and their suffering could never be a part of God's plan, right? But the same goes for our own thoughts. How many people have said, or I believe, you know, how many people have said, you know, I'm become a Christian because I want a better life because I want a better life. I, and I think that, you know, if I follow God, I won't suffer anymore. 
If I follow God, uh, then there won't be any more suffering. And following Jesus, I mean, doesn't that mean that we won't ever be thrown into storms anymore, that everything's going to be better? But let me tell you, friends, this isn't actually what the, the Scriptures teach. It doesn't teach that if you follow Jesus, then everything in this life is going to be perfect. Other religions teach this, right? If you stop sinning, if you follow these commands, if you do the right things, eat the right things, follow the right calendar, do all these right things, then you won't suffer. But Christianity doesn't claim this. It never has. It does teach that in the end, God will make all things new. But he said, but also in the last days, it says that the church and the sinful world are both advancing, are both in conflict until Jesus Christ comes back. Christians are in the world, but not to be of it. They live in the world, and they live in the already, but the not yet. And so Jesus here is challenging this idea and turns that question back to his disciples. Of course he cares, But why does this storm make you think that he doesn't? This response exposes the assumptions that so many of us have and our position and posture towards God. We assume so often that we know better than God, that we have it all figured out, that we're above him, that we have a better plan, that if we follow him, he owes us. But if God owes you, who's God in that scenario? We assume that we could run the universe better than him, that we could write the story better than him. We assume we know all the reasons of why God could do something or why he doesn't do something, and so therefore, we already stand in a position above him. That if he's all good and all powerful and suffering somehow exists, then God can't because we know all the reasons why God does what he does. But if you have that position, notice where you stand and notice where God is. You're above him. But God can't be that way. If he is really God, you are not above him. You never could be. And so, and then when hardship comes, we say, well, see, proof. He's a horrible God. He can't exist. But what's fascinating about all this, the assumption that God can't care, all these assumptions, what's fascinating is that Jesus is on the boat. Jesus is on the boat. Jesus is in the boat, standing with them. God has left the heavens He is with man. He is preaching and teaching and healing and and setting captives free. He has come to rescue them, even though every single one of them and every single one of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and deserve his judgment. And yet Jesus is in the boat, saving them. God, do you care that we're perishing? Is a crazy question to ask the Lord. Not only has Jesus come down, but Jesus has also come and in love and in power has killed sin and put an end to suffering and put an end to death, but not by killing and destroying those things outright because if he just answered our prayers and ended sin and brought judgment over over suffering and death, we would also all be lost because that same sin is in our hearts. We are the cause of so much suffering To kill death, to kill these things, would be to kill us. To bring perfect justice would be to cast us all into the lake of fire. And instead, against all of our wisdom and against all of our perfect plans, what God has instead done is Jesus has come down as God himself, and he comes and he allows sin and suffering and death to come upon him, to be placed upon him, and he allows God's wrath and justice to fall upon him like a hammer blow from heaven, killing him. Jesus has died. And yet by taking these things on, 
and allowing them to destroy him and allowing them to kill him, he not only destroys them, but he also rescues us. And so to ask the question, Jesus, do you care that we are perishing, is a crazy question. The answer is yes. So much so. Jesus, don't you care about my suffering? Jesus, don't you care about my marriage, my children? Jesus, don't you care about the pandemic and that people are dying? Jesus, don't you care about my tears, my loneliness, my depression, my anxiety? Don't you care that I'm going to one day die? The answer to every single one of those questions is undoubtedly and assuredly yes. He cares. He cares. He calms the storm because he cares. He's in that boat because he cares. He's entered into the suffering in the world because he cares. He defeats evil and suffering and death by taking it on himself and allowing it to crush him because he cares for us. And so, because Jesus is God, because he's all-powerful, because he's Lord of the storm, he's Lord over even nature, because he's good and all-loving, because he's perfect, because he's been crucified, there's nothing, nothing in all of creation that should ever be able to unsettle our faith in him. We should have rock-solid faith. What Jesus is and what he has done enables us to have rock-solid faith And no matter what happens to us, we should never lose our faith in God. Now, that doesn't mean life's not hard or that things aren't sad because suffering is still here, sin is still here. Those things are very real, but our faith is untouchable. Because of who Jesus is and what he has done, the victory has already been given to us. Nothing can take away our faith and our hope in the Lord. No greater love has already been shown than Jesus Christ, God himself, dying for sinners. Suffering then has no power over our faith. It has no power over our trust in God and his character. That Jesus is Lord over all the universe, that he's rescued us from anything that could ever take us from him, is an incredibly powerful truth. It's constant. And it's not only powerful for our own inner world, our own inner comfort, as it gives us such assurance but it also empowers us to enter into the world in a brand new way. It it empowers us to enter in and to fight against suffering and injustice and evil. As one commentator put, uh, you know, talking about this passage, he said, we live in a world full of people who doubt that God cares, who doubts if God cares that they're perishing. We live in a world of people who do not know their right hands from their left, who don't know God, who don't know his world. They're poor, they're alone, they're afraid of death, and they have no hope. Their hope is in money, in their beauty. Their hope is in their relationships. It's in any other thing, but they don't know the Lord. And we live in a world that is asking, God, do you care? God, do you care? Now, we Christians, we're not Jesus. We don't get to speak up to to the heavens and command the cosmos or create, you know, food and bread and fishes out of nothing. We're not Jesus. But Jesus is transforming us. He's shaping us. He's giving us new hearts. He's, he's, He's restoring us as image bearers, and he's sending us out as the hands and feet and the mouth of Jesus and putting his heart in us to the point where we cannot stay silent. We cannot be asleep on the boat. We ought to arise like Jesus, to care like Jesus, to use the gifts and our talents that God has given us to to love our neighbors and to care for the broken world. 
We are called to suffer with the suffering, to weep with those who weep, to arise and to proclaim the hopes and victories of Jesus Christ to a world that wonders, God, are you there? We are called to care for this world. We are the ones who God uses to care and to love uh, not only our cities, but our co-workers and our families and everywhere and all peoples. We are those people who have been commanded to love and live like Jesus to a perishing world. Some of us here might be asleep. There are times when I'm asleep, asleep to the cries of our neighbors as they come and, and ask me, do you care that we're perishing? And I roll over and close my eyes. This is a call to arise, to wake up, O oh sleepers, to realize that the world around us is perishing and Jesus is sending us into that very world to proclaim the good news, to wake up and to care for the people in our lives who God has sent us to. And this reality, this dynamic, this power of the gospel is why you find Christians all over the world suffering with the weak. It's why you see them caring for the sick. It's why you see them fighting with the powerless and, and, la- and sitting with and helping the broken. It's why you find them leading movements to fight against sin and injustice wherever they see it. It's why you find Christians seeing, you know, fighting to end sex slavery and child slavery. It's why you see people caring for widows and orphans and the powerless. It's why you see Christians giving away their riches to help those people who are in need. It's why you see Christians fighting for marriages that seem to be dead or sacrificing and loving their children even though they walk, against, walk away from their faith and are in rebellion, a rebellion against God. The gospel gives us an incredible strength and a passion and courage to hope and to suffer and to care for those who have no care, who are wondering, God, are you there? It reminds us that God is there, that he does care, that he arises, that he meets those who are in need, and he is Lord over all, and that he has the power to bring restitution and justice. For those of us here, who are God's people, this passage reminds us of who Jesus is. He is the Lord of the storm, the Lord over all creation. He is God himself and his coming and his work and especially the cross shows us that he cares. He cares to the point where he would give up it all to have us. But it also is a reminder for us that we are Jesus' hands and feet, that we are the ones who suffer with those who are suffering and we move towards them that we are the people who look for our neighbors who are broken and sad and we enter into their lives this is the calling of the church that we are the people who care not only for one another but for the city and the people of god all over the world that we are the ones who care for the perishing and the broken but since lord jesus has already risen since he is lord of the storm we know he can make all things new he is our hope he is our strength And he is the reason we go into the world proclaiming the good news of what Jesus has done. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for your love and for your grace. Lord, we thank you that you are Lord of the storm. Lord, we thank you that you care for us. We thank you that you are a good God and a good king. Lord, we ask, Father, that you would write this story upon our hearts, that we would see that you are God, that you are king, that you are Lord of the universe that you are all-powerful, you are worthy of all trust. Help us to serve and to love and to be obedient to you as Lord. But help us, Lord, to, to live as if you are Lord, to serve you in all things and to put everything um, into subjection under you for your good and perfectly loving and kind. We pray all these things in your name. Amen.